0: Welcome to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Bob Back.
1: And I'm Melody Edwards. Today on the show, we will review congressional action of a new energy bill and hear what our delegation has to say about it.
0: It's a good start. There are a lot of things that need to be done because Wyoming's kind of in the doldrums right now. We'll also look at what's next for displaced coal miners in Gillette.
2: So, you know, it's just, I don't know been devastating.
3: Plus an energy conversation with U.S. House candidate Liz Cheney. It is hugely important for us from an an economic perspective and from a national security perspective to be energy independent.
0: Also discussions on sexual assault and Yellowstone National Park. It's all coming up on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News.
4: Support for Open Spaces Podcast comes from the Hobbes School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash haub
1: Welcome to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Melody Edwards. And
0: I'm Bob Beck. The U.S. Senate put its partisan tendencies aside this week and passed a sweeping bill aimed at modernizing the U.S. energy sector. Matt Laszlo reports from Washington that the bill includes provisions that could help the state's ailing energy industry.
5: Major energy legislation hasn't passed both chambers of Congress since 2007. So lawmakers in both parties were cheering this week after 85 senators passed the energy bill. It seeks to modernize the nation's energy grid, while also making buildings more energy efficient. But for Wyoming's junior Senator John Barrasso, the highlight was inclusion of his provision to streamline the process for exporting liquefied natural gas, or LNG.
6: Well, it's important for us to use uh, Wyoming resources, and there's a need for these around the world. People want it. We have an abundance uh, in Wyoming, so I think it's really important to be able to sell it.
5: The U.S. is now the world's number one producer of oil and natural gas, which is why lawmakers are trying to boost exports. Barrasso says it was important to get language included that forces the executive branch to accept or reject new LNG export facilities within 45 days of getting an environmental assessment.
6: The, uh, the, the real problem is that uh, for something we have an abundance of and the ability to sell, the administration has been very slow on providing permits to build the export terminals to allow us to, uh, to sell that.
5: Many environmental groups opposed the bill because it counts biomass as carbon neutral. And many Democratic senators supported it, even though it was largely neutral on climate change. Connecticut Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal says at least the bill won't do much environmental harm.
0: It is very much a baby step and needs to be followed by other strides in the right direction on energy and environment. And the point is the two are compatible if they're done the right way.
5: Blumenthal supported the bill, even though he disagrees with Barrasso's push to expand natural gas exports.
0: LNG looking forward has to be reassessed in light of the changing energy world. Whether it makes sense to be shipping the huge amounts of energy that are involved in the LNG industry has to be reassessed because the costs of doing it are very substantial. The costs
5: simply in energy of moving that amount of product. But Barrasso brushes aside those environmental critiques.
6: And also I had a chance to visit with Prime Minister Abe in Japan. He wants Wyoming natural gas. Uh, After Fukushima and the shutdown of the nuclear power plants there, they have a significant shortage of uh, energy, and they want what we have to offer in Wyoming, and this bill is going to allow us to sell it.
5: Barrasso says LNG will also boost U.S. dominance in Europe.
6: We know that Russia holds foreign countries hostage uh, in just in terms of access to LNG, to energy. Uh, so th- we want to be able to participate there and, and undermine their ability to hold other people uh, under domination.
5: The energy bill also includes a provision to boost the workforce in the clean energy field, notably for those displaced from oil, gas, and mining jobs. But West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, a pro-coal Democrat, says even that doesn't go far enough. He'd rather see U.S. tax dollars that are being held overseas come back to U.S. soil to boost manufacturing here.
6: I want to make sure there's a job. If we're going to retrain a person, you better bring a factory, bring something, get some way to attract some money and some capital investment to make something happen so we're training for something that's going to be there for them. And we haven't gotten to that step yet. We're just trying to appease people by just throwing more money at it.
5: Overall, Wyoming senior Senator Mike Enzi says the bill is a win-win, though now he and other lawmakers are looking at what's next.
0: It's a good start. Uh There are a lot of things that need to be done, because Wyoming's kind of in the doldrums right now, because oil, natural gas, and coal are all down in price. And of course, there is a a war on coal. And uh, it's kept a lot of inventions from happening that could make things better, because the people that were doing them said, who would I sell them to?
5: The Senate bill still needs to be melded with a House energy bill. While they're similar, some big differences still need to be negotiated, like on timelines for approving LNG facilities and what regulatory programs to keep or to repeal. Alaska Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski will lead those negotiations as the head of the Energy Committee, and she fears it may not be possible in an election year.
3: You know, one of the concerns that I think that we have or or the obstacles that we have in front of us is time and the calendar and the fact that in order to have a conference, the House and the Senate have to be
5: in town at the same time. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington.
1: Wyoming's powerful coal industry is starting to feel the full force of the market's decline. Three of the state's four largest producers are now in bankruptcy. Last month, two of the country's largest coal mines, both in Wyoming's Powder River Basin, laid off 15% of their workers. And that's on top of hard times in both oil and gas. As the state's energy booms go bust, Wyoming is facing the colossal task of having to replace some, or live with less, of its main economic drivers. Inside Energy's Lee Patterson reports from Gillette, Wyoming's coal capital. I met Gail Japp on a gray day in early spring.
7: It's kinda chilly, but uh, this is Wyoming, and I like Wyoming (laughs) She's 64, with blonde hair and bright blue eyes, the kind you keep noticing. Wind ripped across the open prairie as we walked towards her corral. This is money. This is my two year old. And this guy, he's just a year old. He's my baby. Jap's horses are like grandkids to her. But for the past few days, she's been preparing to give them up. I've got to downsize and there's a lot of stuff I'm gonna have to sell. So that she'll be able to pay her mortgage. Jap was one of the nearly 500 coal miners laid off recently. Whew. Inside and out of the wind, Jap tells me she's just filed for unemployment and has started to look for work. Yeah, I can't leave Gillette, and, which is really going to make it hard for me to find something. I have responsibilities here. Her 90-year-old dad, young grandkids. So, you know, it's just, I don't know, it's been devastating. I've been in Gillette since 68, so I've seen the oil boom come and go, but it's never been this bad, ever. Now that this first big round of coal layoffs has sunk in, people in the region are trying to figure out what's next. They've lived for decades with a strong economy fueled by energy dollars, a low unemployment rate, and plentiful well-paying
6: jobs. It is an absolute, complete turnaround right now.
7: That's Carter Napier, Gillette city administrator.
6: I'm not saying there are no job options here, but I am saying... The, the, the quality of job that they once had.
7: Those jobs, and, and he says, don't appear to be available. Oh, Businesses are closing, more homes are up for sale every day, and recently the Food Bank of the Rockies' mobile pantry, a big truck, came to Gillette for the first time ever. From the coal mines in West Virginia to the oil fields in North Dakota and Colorado, communities all over the country are struggling with the economics of an energy bust. Wyoming has put some funding into diversifying its economy with programs to encourage growth in industries like tech and manufacturing.
6: But thinking about what type of impact you're trying to mitigate when you're talking about a powerhouse like the coal industry for the state of Wyoming is, is overwhelming.
7: To understand why this idea is so completely overwhelming, here are some key numbers. The average coal miner in Wyoming makes around $83,000 a year. Overall, the fossil fuel industry, that's coal, oil, and gas combined, employs around 10% of Wyoming's private sector workforce. And revenue from these industries accounts for around 70% of the state's budget. David Bullard is an economist who crunched some of these numbers for Wyoming's Department of Workforce Services. He says energy jobs even affect sectors like retail and food services.
6: And so those people have have money to spend and and they spend it here in the state, which supports other jobs.
8: Reach your hand down in there, get that plug and plug it in.
7: Where do I plug it in? In the light. Nick DeLotte has become right sort of Good a handyman recently. Find it, find it. He's bought used cars, like this one he's fixing with his son, and he moved his family into an old trailer, which was badly in need of repair. This is his way of preparing for an economic downturn.
8: Good, now we got new headlights.
7: DeLott has worked in both the coal mines and the oil fields. He most recently owned a newspaper. He's now running for state office, partially to address Wyoming's economic ups and downs.
8: You know, nobody's really doing anything about it. I I haven't seen any really good investments in the booms to prepare for the bust. It's, It's like every single time they go, oh, hindsight being 2020, we should have prepared for this.
7: One of DeLott's ideas? build a highway to directly connect Gillette with a major interstate giving the area better access to cities in the south like Denver and Albuquerque. He envisions Gillette as a distribution center and a manufacturing hub. But
8: and this is a plan for, you know, 25 30 years in the future.
7: And Wyoming's energy bust is happening now. In terms of a plan for tomorrow and the next day, there's no quick fix. For inside energy, I'm Lee Patterson.
0: Coming up, we'll talk energy with U.S. House candidate Liz Cheney. This is Open Spaces.
1: Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards.
0: And I'm Bob Beck. In coming weeks, we will speak with candidates for the U.S. House of Representatives about a variety of issues and provide stories about topics of interest. We begin our series with Republican Liz Cheney. Cheney is the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney, who is also Wyoming's congressman. Ms. Cheney has been an attorney. She's worked in the U.S. State Department, where she worked on U.S. policy in the Middle East— She also was a Fox News contributor and co-authored a book with her father. Today, we talk about energy issues, specifically coal.
3: Yeah, I think, you know, clearly we're in a situation now, um, we've obviously got a market downturn, um, but we've been through that before in Wyoming. And what's happening now is you've got a market downturn that's being absolutely exacerbated by these policies coming out of Washington. Um, and it's no secret, you know, the Obama administration, Secretary Clinton, Senator Sanders, they've been very clear. They want to kill the coal industry. Uh, in my view, it's based on totally junk science and they tried during the first part of the administration to do this really through these subsidies to renewables. Mm -hmm. And I think it's absolutely clear that we've seen tens of billions of taxpayer dollars wasted. Um, they became clear that you cannot through... You know, government picking winners and losers shift the mix of our energy sources to uh, favor renewables. And so now you've got this next step, which was the Clean Power Plan, which thankfully has been stayed, but you're seeing uh, the impact of that and the results of that continually. And that's not the only issue we've got. You've got the regional haze rule uh, and a whole range of other standards coming out of the EPA in particular. And I think that if we... Um, have a focused effort, if we have leadership on this issue in Washington, we need to look at this as a national battle. You know, we in Wyoming certainly understand how important coal is to us and certainly understand how important it is for the mix of, of power. Still today, it's responsible for a larger percentage of electricity generation in the country than any other source. Natural gas is coming close. But across the board, we have the ability to be energy independent as a nation, and we in Wyoming have the resources to make that possible, and that's hugely important for us in terms of economic growth, uh, in terms of uh, bringing businesses back, and it's something that we can do if we get the federal government out of the way, but it is going to require a national effort. You know, you've got to be in a position where you're able to explain to people coal doesn't only matter to us in Wyoming. If you like electricity, then what this administration is trying to do to the coal industry Um, is going to be devastating across the board.
0: One of your ideas is to obviously look at the EPA and and maybe do away with the EPA in in some form. Could that be a little extreme?
3: Well, I think you've got a series of um, pieces of legislation that were well-intentioned when they were passed. Um, Things like the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, um, the Endangered Species Act, may have been well-intentioned but have been totally, at this point, expanded far beyond anything that's beneficial and far beyond, in my view, anything that's constitutional. And so we've really got to look very closely at what it's going to take to be able to restrain and roll back agencies like the EPA. Um, and certainly that has to do with congressional oversight. It has to do with power of the purse. Um, the bureaucracy has become bloated. Um, and unelected bureaucrats shouldn't be able to exercise that kind of power. It's going to take regulatory reform as well.
0: Well, we've been talking about regulations, which which are obviously out there. How much of this is the fault, though, also of the industry? When I when I talk to researchers at the University of Wyoming, it's generally somebody has a good idea to do clean and coal research or something like that, but it's never the coal industry. And and then at the same time, you know, they've made some. Especially those two companies made some maybe strange investments that that might be part of this layoff mix as as much as the regulations. How much of this is on them? Do you think?
3: Well, I I, I just disagree. I mean, I think that the, the industry has in fact you know put tremendous efforts in, um, and has been able to sort of see um, the concerns that people have had, and you know certainly our coal is the cleanest in the world. Um, and if you look at, you know, some of the, the areas that people have focused on in terms of export, for example, um, you know, we have faced challenges certainly from, you know, states like Oregon, where you've got environmental objections um, to the siting of terminals. But you've also got a huge problem at the federal level in terms of the permitting that's necessary, in terms of the time it would take. So, you know, it, it, it seems very clear to me that if you're talking about what needs to be done to recognize and unleash the potential here, what's got to be done is a federal government has got to be rolled back, restricted, regulations cut so that we really can get access to these resources and put them to work for everybody. Is all of climate change
0: a, a junk science?
3: You know, I think that the notion that carbon dioxide is a pollutant is wrong. And I think that's one of the things you'll people can go to my website, uh, cheneyforwyoming.com, and see my priorities. And one of them is... I'd like to see Congress legislate a prohibition against regulating CO2 as a pollutant. I think when you've got a gas that is generated by every human activity, the idea that you've got a federal agency that is acting, I think, in an unconstitutional way to regulate it, um, you know, is fundamentally wrong. Um, and so I've, I certainly am not convinced that we're in a position where human activity is causing an increase in temperature – And you can certainly see they've even changed the way they talk about it. You know, the the Al Gore's of the world don't call it global warming anymore because, frankly, um, the the facts didn't bear that out. It's now called climate change. And um, every single policy that they're putting in place today, which will devastate the economy, will devastate Wyoming's economy, uh, devastate potentially the energy industry, will, by their own admission, have almost no impact on global temperatures.
0: We've had, uh, it depends on which uh, member of Congress we're talking about, but we've not had our delegation recently really embrace renewables. Now, I, I know you're, as you've made very clear, you don't want to get away from coal and go strictly towards renewables, but what is your stance when it comes to renewables?
4: Look,
3: I think that as a nation, the responsible place for us to be is to say we're pursuing all of the above. I mean, it is it is hugely important for us from an econ- an economic perspective and from a national security perspective, to be energy independent. And that's where we ought to be, and we ought to pursue every possible avenue to make that happen. But, but what we've seen happen in the last seven and a half years is almost sort of simultaneous with these huge advances in fracking and in horizontal drilling mm-hmm. that have made us you know closer to energy independence than ever before, at the same time, you've had this ideology on the part of the administration that doesn't want to support fossil fuels. And so we've watched them waste tens of billions of dollars on renewables. Um, the same environmental groups that complain about you know, sage grouse when it comes to oil and gas seem not at all concerned about you know, what the wind turbines are doing to bald eagles, for example. Um, and so I think we've got to have a level playing field. And I think we need to pursue all of the above. But right now, you've got the administration very much trying to uh, exercise favoritism.
0: Those were some comments on energy from U.S. House candidate Liz Cheney, We will be hearing from other candidates throughout the rest of the spring and summer. Wyoming I mean, Public Radio will also be co-sponsoring a Laramie-based debate that'll take place the evening of May 2nd, and we will broadcast that live.
1: Staying with the topic of energy, picture the wind turbine technician, a worker with a hard hat and climbing harness perched atop a tall white tower, making sure those power-generating blades are spinning just right. That job, maintaining wind turbines, that's the fastest-growing profession in the country right now. Inside Energy reporter Dan Boyce puts that in context.
9: Ask student John Cruthers why he wants to be a wind turbine technician. I'm looking forward to
10: climbing up 300 feet and working on something that's critical.
9: He's enrolled at the Ecotech Institute, a technical college in Aurora, Colorado, learning on-scale models of the turbine engines he'll be fixing. Going into the renewable energy business makes him feel he's helping the environment. On top of that, he likes the idea of job security.
8: I've been hearing that this is a growing industry.
9: He's right. The Bureau of Labor Statistics predicts the number of wind turbine tech jobs is going to double in the next eight years or so. Sounds huge, but the real numbers behind that are pretty modest. 4,400 turbine tech jobs jumping to a little more than 9,000 jobs nationwide. Meanwhile, tens of thousands of coal, oil, and natural gas workers have been laid off in the last year, but that's one reason why Tom Darren with the American Wind Energy Association points to the growth of turbine technicians as one small and exciting piece of a trend seen through his industry. We have 88,000 jobs right now, and that's our record number of jobs in the wind industry. The American Wind Energy Association says that's 20% more total wind jobs than a year ago. And Darren says last year more wind power was added in the U.S. than any other electricity source. We beat natural gas, we beat solar, we were top. With that, wind still only generates about 5% of the country's electricity. But student John Cruthers sees a healthy career in front of him, as long as he's working with his hands on a turbine.
10: That's what I want to do, yeah.
9: For Inside Energy, I'm Dan Boyce.
1: When we come back, we'll hear more from Dan Boyce as he discusses renewable energy and we'll have a discussion about sexual assault on the country's Indian reservations. This is Open Spaces.
0: Welcome to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Bob Beck.
1: And I'm Melody Edwards. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, a good time to talk with the editor of a new book being handed out for free to Native women around the country called What to Do When You're Raped. Comanche member Sharon Esatoya is the director of the Native American Women's Health Education Resource Center. I talked to her about how the book offers straight talk to Native girls and women. She starts with a reading from the book.
2: A is for all you will face as a Native girl. Because as Native girls, you're more than three times as likely as other American girls to be raped. Currently, more than nine out of ten Native girls have been forced to have sex when they don't want to, and that is always rape, even if it is on a date. Don't be scared. Tell someone. It is not ever your fault you did not ask for it, and you are not alone. This book is so that you will be prepared and you will know what to do and who can help when you are raped. So, maybe
1: you could just start by talking about why you decided that this book needed to be developed.
2: In Native communities, there is very little prosecution of uh, rape predators that occurs. And so we, uh, we can't wait for the FBI to do what they're supposed to be doing. So we decided to come up with a community response. We came up with the title by um, the fact that a while back, a young mother was in my office, and she asked me, uh, just point blank, she said, Sharon, what do I do when my daughter is raped? And it it wasn't what to do if she's raped, but when. And it was just shocking. It just, it stuck with me.
1: And, you know, the subtitle of the book is An ABC Handbook for Native Girls, and it's an illustrated book. And so I'm wondering what age group this book is directed to and and why it seems to be directed to a a much younger group of girls.
2: Well, we're looking at... uh, From, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old on up. Uh, And we made it an ABC book because if you get handed a a brochure and it's all words, you know, too wordy, you don't finish it. So we wanted a tool that could be easy to read, fast, easy to find what you've read. So it doesn't really matter what age group you are. It's useful at any age, but it is geared toward younger women. And it has a really strong message, you know, that the bottom line is that uh, it is not your fault, do not blame yourself, and you are not alone.
1: Now, what law was passed in October 2015, and, and why was it so important to Native women?
2: I want to say it was around 2013, there was a a court decision that made Plan B an OTC, an over-the-counter, which means you do not have to have a prescription, you do not have to see a physician, and uh, any age can purchase it. So, um, And what what exactly is uh, the Plan B? Plan B is emergency contraceptive, known as the morning-after pill. It will not cause someone to uh, abort their pregnancy if they're pregnant. It's a contraceptive. It prevents you from getting pregnant. And so in October, October 15, 2015, Indian Health Service pharmacies and clinics implemented a policy that follows the federal mandate. You know, that was a huge victory. You know, it took them almost two years to develop and implement a policy. So now Indian women uh, can go to the Indian Health Service pharmacies and access it like everyone else in the country.
1: How is it that you're um, making sure that this book is getting into the hands of young women?
2: Well, we're doing uh, workshops, and uh, we've notified coalitions that it's available, Native coalitions, in case they'd like to purchase it. This is woman-to-woman, woman-to-girl, girl-to-girl, and it's meant to be shared in in the classroom, in a small group, a talking circle, one-on-one. And around the kitchen table, because so much dialogue occurs around a kitchen table. Um,
1: and it goes into quite a bit of nuts and bolts uh, as mm-hmm. as it goes along. It, it, it becomes really clear about, you know, you might need to get money for gas, things exactly. like that. It's, why did you decide to get into that kind of detail about how to go about this?
2: Because these are things that our our young people are are faced with any woman is faced with when you're living in a rural community and on a reservation especially so uh instead of just panicking, here are tasks that you need to do you know you you know tell somebody get into the emergency room report it to law enforcement you know get some emergency contraceptive if they don't have it what do i do then okay i got to i got to get it i got to get some money together i got to get to town i got to you know i don't have a car i got to have somebody take me i need gas money etc so you know when you're in that state of mind a lot of times you're just like i don't have it and you're not thinking And so this helps you. It's kind of like a little roadmap.
1: Well, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to me about this project. Well, thank you very much for
2: having us. And uh, I hope everybody uh, gets a copy of this book. They can get a hold of us at our website, nativeshop.org. And uh, it can be downloaded free.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much again. You're welcome. That was Sharon Esatoya, editor of the new book, What to Do When You're Raped, an ABC handbook for Native girls.
0: Most people on the Wind River Reservation have seen Craig Ferris on the sidelines of the basketball court at Wyoming Indian High School. As head coach, he's led the Chiefs to four state championships, but most days Ferris can be found driving around and knocking on doors, putting the full court press on a major problem for reservation schools' attendance. Ferris works for Wyoming Indian Elementary. Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Schrank spent a day on the job with him, and he has this
11: report. Craig Ferris begins his morning behind the wheel of a black suburban armed with a thick stack of envelopes. But before he delivers those he's got to make a quick
12: stop. I usually come have to come get these guys at least once a week so
11: Ferris is what's called a homeschool coordinator a job that seems to be equal parts mailman, social worker and taxi driver
12: It's kind of like the truant officer my job is to make sure the kids who aren't coming to school find out why and what we need to do to get them to school. Good morning, Talissa. Good morning. Third grader
11: Talissa Kadat missed the school bus this morning. My dad forgot to wake me up, so he called this guy. Ferris' school district had the second lowest attendance rate in the state last year. At Wyoming Indian Elementary, the number of students who are chronically absent or missing more than 10% of school days has been double the state average.
12: What's one of the top things that really plague a kid's development in school? Um, if they're not in school, they're, they're not learning. All right, have a good day. Thanks, ride. Right. All right, we'll drop some letters off.
11: To fix the problem, Ferris's main job is what's inside those envelopes, notices for parents whose children have missed too many school days. When kids have 5, 10, or 15 unexcused absences, he shows up to their
12: door with a letter. A lot of parents know they're not sending their kids to school. They know why I'm visiting, so they're, they're not going to answer the door. <laughs> a copy of
11: each of these letters is also sent to the tribal prosecutor's office. Parents who can't get their kids to school can be charged with educational neglect and face probation and fines. So, Ferris, who stands six foot six, is no stranger to rustling blinds
12: and sideways stairs. But he understands what parents are going through. A majority of our parents are trying. They are doing what it takes to get their kids to school. You know, even if they don't have a lot, they're doing it.
11: And some parents are even happy to see him, like Rikina Armour. If he knocks on the door, is it a good thing or a bad thing?
2: A good thing. He's the coach. Don't be shy. The best coach we have. <laughs> 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 you
12: need to get me some dog biscuits or something. Yeah. <laughs>
11: Ferris has done this job for about six years, but he's been coaching basketball twice as long. Everybody knows
12: I coach the high school team, so when I deliver letters, they're always asking me about the boys and the team and how we're going to do this year. And I, I think that kind of helps me out because uh, most people know who I am.
11: After a few more deliveries, Ferris is called back to the school to take a sick student home. In the nurse's office, we bump into Ferris's mom, Donna Highwalker. And what are you doing?
2: Following my son around? Following
11: him around, yeah, yeah. What should I know about Craig? <laughs> I
2: don't <wanna> <laughs> you want me to say. <laughs>
11: <laughs> high Walker works at the school as a literacy interventionist. In fact, most of the family works here, she tells me.
2: Yeah, we ended up getting all hired. Well, I'm the one that first started. I started, I've been here about, this is my 29th year. I got hired, my husband got hired, and then I think
4: you.
11: Ferris was born and raised here. He went to elementary school here, played high school basketball here. He left to play college ball, but came back. He says this is exactly where he wants to be. I really don't see myself doing anything else. (laughs) Ferris is like a liaison between the school and students' homes. Now he's on the hunt for some kids who haven't been at school all week. He's got a few different addresses for them. Nobody answers the door at the first two. He learns the kids are in Casper, visiting a family member in the hospital. Family illness is a big reason many of his kids miss school. The reservation is home to many large extended families, and Ferris says they're big on coming together during trying times. Another cause for absence, he says, is the
12: fact that the reservation is more than 3,000 square miles. It's so vast our, where, where our kids are coming from. you know, If they're not catching the bus, it's pretty hard for them to find a ride to school, especially with the, the, you know, socioeconomic aspect
11: of it. And Ferris says some students living in tough conditions have bigger worries than getting
12: to school on time. I've been to houses where nobody should be living there type of thing, and bad things are happening in, in the house. And I've seen a lot, um, dealt with a lot, um, reported a few things. But mostly what he sees when he knocks on doors
11: all over the reservation are parents who want the best for their kids.
12: You really see kind of where people, parents, and families are struggling. And, you know, it might not look like they're trying, but they are. They're doing what they can. What's that saying? Doing what what they can with what they have. So, you know, it's a tough life out here.
11: After a day out in the field, Ferris parks his SUV and pours over attendance data in his office. He stacks another thick pile of envelopes and maps out his route for tomorrow. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Aaron Schrank.
0: These reports are part of The American Graduate. Let's make it happen, a public media initiative to address the dropout crisis supported by the Corporation for Public
1: Broadcasting. The cost of wind and solar power have fallen dramatically in recent years. Still, renewables only account for a fraction of the energy produced in the United States. One person confronting this issue sits in an office in Golden, Colorado. His name is Martin Keller, and he's the new boss at the National Renewable Energy Lab. Keller, who hails from Germany, tells Inside Energy's Dan Boyce, the lab needs to spur more innovation to increase the amount of renewable energy available
8: i give you perhaps an example in wind. There's a lot of wind in the southern area of the United States, but this is a good example. It's much higher up, so we need to reach higher levels. We need to go to about 120, 140 meters height, and you cannot transport these towers. You need to make them on site, and you also need to make the blades on site, and there is no technology out there. You cannot do this right now. This is where innovation comes in. So, of course, the, the sun isn't always shining, the wind isn't
9: always blowing, and yet we want power all the time at the flip of a switch. Battery storage, that technology is coming along, but it's coming along very slowly.
8: How much is that itself holding renewables back? Excellent point. I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, major, it's a major issue when you look into high penetration of renewables, then storage will be a, a major issue. And I think this is, in my view, a very big challenge for, for the next 10 years. What storage technology are we developing, which is cost competitive at a grid scale level? I will say, look, there's, there's two elements. Number one is storage. Number two is also the distribution system. How do we? How will the grid in 30 years look like? Now, when you look really into the future, Perhaps the the whole system will look very different. Perhaps it's much more on a regional level. So I think in the years out, we will see a complete change in the way we produce electricity and distributing electricity. So many of the solutions that
9: you advocate would require so much policy change. How much should be devoted to research, and how much of the the work here should be devoted to experimenting
8: and research on policy we should create the knowledge the data to give to inform policy i think it's important that we not not doing politics we should help to inform policy and and this is has to be done in a, in a, in a way which is laid out of the science and engineering and the analysis data which then gives the information to policy. So we not necessarily be involved in writing the policy. This is not our job, but we should create the the baseline, the data to inform policy decision makers.
9: Even in preparing that data, climate change and and therefore renewable energy is still such a political hot topic in the United States, and uh, especially in light of the Obama administration's Clean Power Plan and what that may mean for our power system. So you've worked in government labs on these topics for years. How do you deal with the politicization and how that affects the operation of your lab?
8: So i give you the example on on coming back to climate change because a lot of times when when I'm in Washington and you're talking to Congress, as you said, climate change is very polarized. But when you talk to both parties, and you just show the scientific facts. A lot of people really acknowledge and agree that we have a problem. Again, sometimes I tell you in a situation like this, we as scientists, we need to take a look at this. How do we explain the scientific results in a way that the broad audience, public, can understand this? And I tell you on climate change, on the renewable side, I tell you sometimes I think we as scientists have to do a better job to explain what the driver is for the science and engineering we are doing. And this has nothing to do with politics.
9: Dr. Martin Keller is the new director of the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Golden, Colorado. Dr. Keller, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for having me.
1: Inside Energy is a public media collaboration focused on America's energy issues.
0: Come back, we will discuss an article on Yellowstone National Park. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck.
1: And I'm Melody Edwards. To mark the National Park Service centennial this year, National Geographic magazine is devoting its entire May issue to the country's first national park, Yellowstone. Charlie Hamilton James is one of the photographers whose work will be featured in the issue. His niche is aquatic wildlife photography, animals like cutthroat trout, beavers, and otters. James is from the U.K. and relocated to Jackson for a year to shoot these pictures in the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. He told Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard that while he was here, he took his family on some classic Western road trips.
13: To be honest, I felt like Carl Griswold, um, <laughs> from <laughs> from Lampoon. <laughs> yeah, we packed the car up and we went on road trips because. You know, you you grow up in England and you watch films about people doing road trips across the states, and when you get here, you've got to go and do it. I drove the kids from Jackson all the way through Utah, Monument Valley, to the Canyon, to Vegas, to L.A., really looking for what it is that represents the American West to me, because that's what I'm interested in photographing, It's that working out the essence of it. And certainly when you've just arrived from the U.K., that's kind of two things. That's your vision of the American West, but also it's kind of the American dream as well. Now, how do I take on the American dream? Uh, it's pickup trucks, it's cowboys, it's all these things, and it's, it's McDonald's, it's everything else. And, and I'm constantly trying to get to the sort of the point of what that is and take photos that represent that.
10: Some of those photographs are these beautiful landscapes, and then you step back, and there's all of these people in it, all of these tourists. What do you take away from that?
13: I guess, I guess I'm sort of playing. Basically, I'm, pre- I'm presenting the truth about these iconic American landscapes, you know, not the romantic ideal of them, which is these pristine wildernesses. You know, the truth is, if you if you go to the Grand Canyon, there's thousands and thousands of people, you know, there's three people deep at some points taking selfies. <laughs> That's what it actually looks like. And you can get to the front of, of the railing and overlook and, you know, there's no people in your shot. You step back a, f- a few feet, and, you know, it's a landscape, an incredible landscape full of people. That's what it actually is. And, you know, thats it's not just a joke. It's actually um, a sort of, for me, it's a sort of journalistic statement. You know, I'm, I'm after the truth of what places are like, and that's, that's what it is.
10: How do the photographs you take, especially of those otters, the cutthroat trout, all the things that you've been focusing on here in the Yellowstone ecosystem... How do those photos contribute and inform what gets written in the issue? Well,
13: it's, it's actually interesting, National Geographic, and, and you know I get asked this question a lot. So, as the photographer, how much time do you spend with the writer, and how, how does you know how do you sort of symbiotically work with each other? Well, you know, actually, not very much. Um, it, when you read the magazine, the text is often separate to the pictures, and the pictures survive on their caption details. I think this issue is slightly different because. We have looked at specific issues within the ecosystem and photographers have gone out specifically to shoot those issues and those issues will be written about. But the actual pictures aren't referenced in the text. All my issues that I was photographing were, uh, I guess, wildlife ecosystem pictures. Um, for instance, the cutthroat trout ecosystem uh, you know forty two species rely on cutthroat trout for their survival, so my job was to not only just photograph cutthroat trout but also the animals that rely on them like bald eagles like bears like otters, and basically, I have a pretty tight shot list you know I had a sh- <laughs> one of my things on my list was. Otter-eating cutthroat trout. You know, I had to get that shot. It couldn't be a brook trout or a a mountain whitefish or a sucker. It had to be a cutthroat trout because that is one story aligned with another story.
10: Do you have a favourite photo that you have taken for this particular issue?
13: Uh, I do, and it's a silly photo. (laughs) It's a man, it's a Chinese tourist photographing a picture of the Tetons with the Tetons in the background. He's basically photographing (laughs) the exact view that he's standing and looking at, and it's just a photo of it. And I I just can't understand why he's doing that.
10: What is it about the Yellowstone ecosystem in particular that makes it a good example and case study for other national parks to observe?
13: Well, I think the thing about certainly Yellowstone National Park is firstly it's got funding, and they can use that funding to to invest in, in science and biology and land management. And, you know, it, it, I guess, can be a test case for other national parks. You know, if if they can sort the problem of bison leaving the park out, for instance, OK, how can that be applied to other parks that are experiencing the same problems? So it's a real, I guess, a good, a good lab, a big wild lab, for working out ways of sorting out contentious environmental issues.
10: When you were working in that lab... Is there anything that surprised you more than you thought it would, uh, maybe in taking your photographs and experiencing that wilderness?
13: I mean, the whole thing was a surprise to me. I'm, I come from a country that, you know, it's just grey and it rains all the time. And uh, I think, do you know, it surprised me how much I fell in love with America. And we left Jackson and none of us wanted to. and uh, And we're all coming back soon. <laughs> because we're all deeply in love with it.
10: Charlie Hamilton James, photographer for National Geographic, is working on the upcoming Yellowstone issue in May of 2016. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you.
0: wrap up today's program with a piece of poetry from Laramie poet Kristen Gunther. This is called Devil's Tower.
4: In the picture the shot dog lay, a shuck, the corpse soft and innards rotted, got agape. What was most essential had been torn away, leaving the weather-beaten warp, a cavern blaze of blood black where eyes were, before the vultures came for the vitreous, water, salts, and sugars that preserve acuity of sight, before the defleshing, after death. The young dog that tracked the body for hours, out of frame. Perhaps the act of finding is harder than the art of loss. You don't know what will be tangible, legible, discarded and shocked, beautiful, at the end. Or we do know. We know the way the dog knew as she quartered the field, near the volcanic veins of Devil's Tower, as friar-headed buzzards made gradual descents. I'm Kristen Gunther.
0: If you have a poem or a short essay you would like to share, simply contact us through our website. our program this week. Hey, if you missed any part of the show or want to listen to it again, you can go to our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. There, you can also sign up for our podcast.
1: You can also listen to segments from this show and others or send us ideas for future shows. Anna Rader is our web editor. We
0: also invite you to become fans of our Facebook page and all of our reporters are on Twitter.
1: This week, for the second straight year, our reporters won three Edward R. Murrow Awards for reporting excellence.
0: Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.